Uh, but again, Jesus uh, there in Matthew or 19.26 said unto them, With men this is impossible, with all, but with God all things are possible. So take our Bibles and don't turn to Matthew, but not 19. Turn to 21. Matthew chapter 21 this morning. Matthew chapter 21. And the Lord has given us a message, really a, a part one of a two-part message, and we'll talk more about that here in a moment. But there, Matthew chapter 21, and we're going to begin reading here in verse number 12, the gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 21, verse 12, and if you don't mind, if you're able, please stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. And we'll begin reading right there again in verse number 12. The Bible says, Matthew writes, And Jesus went into the temple and cast out all them that sold and brought uh, and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers, and the seats of them that sold doves, and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priest and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple, and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased, and said unto him, unto Jesus, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus said unto them, Excuse me, unto them, yea, have you never read, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise? And verse 17 says, And he left them and went out of the city into Bethany, and he lodged there. And in the morning, as he returned into the city, that's back to Jerusalem, he hungered. And when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon but leaves only, and said unto it, Let no fruit grow on thee henceforth forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How soon is the fig tree withered away? Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, If ye have faith and doubt not, ye shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree, but also if ye shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be cast, and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. And all things, Whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing, ye shall receive. And, and speaking about that, Savior, in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you've done for us on the, on the cross of Calvary. We thank you for your grace, your amazing grace, Lord, for your mercy. Lord, we, just, we stand in awe of how great you are, and your greatness just, uh, just, is just unspeakable, Lord. It's inexhaustible, Lord. And we so much thank you for the fact that you're mindful of man, that you loved us so much that you sent your only begotten Son, Lord, to redeem us, to pay our sin debt, Lord. We're, we're very thankful, Lord. Lord, we love you, and uh, we ask that you meet with us this morning in a very special way. Lord, bless the reading of your word as, as we look into it, as we look into it and study it, Lord. Help it to, to, to not return void in our hearts, Lord. Apply it to our lives, Lord, and help us leave here today, Lord, drawn closer to you, Lord, uh, to see how great you are in our lives, in our individual, personal walk with you, Lord. Do, do a work in us that only you can do. Lord, do a work in me this morning that only you can do, Lord. And I thank you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please, please be seated. You know, as I, throughout the week, as I read through this passage a couple times, and as I studied it uh, many times throughout the week, and an outline, of, of course, began uh, to develop and <clears throat> the sermon for today's sermon, and it began there in verse number 12. Not working. Uh, verse number 12. And I think it's quite applicable for us as we look through this. Um, and also, I want you to see that for the text chosen this morning, um, verses 12 through 16, if you can see right there in your text, uh, verses 12 through 16 are actually separated from 
uh, a minor separation from 17 through 22, because they really truly capture two different events. One is the, the overturning of the tables in the temple, if we're going to call it the cleansing of the table, if you will. And the other event is talking about the, the fig tree, but they're also connected. But there are still two different events. Again, the first event occurred in the temple at Jerusalem, and the second event incur, occurred outside the temple, but after Jesus returned to Bethany, most likely the next day. Um, now, we will not get to the fig tree this morning. As I mentioned earlier, this is kind of part one in a two-part sermon. Um, I only read those verses today to lay the foundation this morning for both parts of this sermon. And that Matthew was led to record them one right after the other. So he recorded these two events right after another. I want to point out that if the Holy Spirit is truly Matthew's number one source and Matthew's number one guide, and we believe that he is, there is... Just a hunch here, probably a reason for the arrangement that's here. Because I don't think God does anything by mistake or as, a, as an afterthought. But also this approach can certainly be taken for every event and every part of Scripture, the way it's compiled. But at the same time, there are some paragraphs that are bolder in their, in their, um, in their breaks and more clean and clear than others, which suggest a purpose for those which are not, which is right here. In other words... There is a reason that God led Matthew, as well as the other gospel writers, to arrange the events in Jesus' life the way they did. There's a purpose. Each gospel writer has a purpose. In fact, Mark places these two events in a different order. And it is arguable that Mark has them in the chronological order that gives us a reason. Well, why did Matthew put them in this order? Because he's making a point. There's a, there's a teaching, a lesson here that he's trying to teach us through by following the Holy Spirit. Now, we may not grasp the reason all the time. Uh, but it does give us the authority to connect what is written in application like the gospel writers did in compilation, if that makes sense. How they put them together gives us the authority to apply them in a, in a like manner. Now, while Matthew clearly records two distinct events here in this passage that we've read with the cleansing of the temple and the cursing of the fig tree, um, there are more than just two applicable truths, no surprise there, um, in these 11 verses. But before we get to those, I'd like to point out something significant that we're going to use for our main point, our first point this morning. Uh, it is sim- it's a simple deduction, I think, from the text, an inference, and certainly not the main thrust of the text. But in both of these events, Jesus is dealing, he is speaking to those who are the called, those who are his people. He's his people. He's, he's dealing with the, the, the temple very much is about his people. Um, it was designed by God for God's people. The fig tree is a picture of a nation that is God's people. And in verses 21 through 22, which we'll put for next week, Jesus speaks to his people, the disciples. So it's all Jesus teaching a lesson to God's people. Therefore, an, an admittedly broad title, uh, I've named this morning's sermon as simply the people of God. And our outline is going to follow our Savior's teaching to them and to us and how His people, God's people, us, how we should be characterized. What are some attributes that should define us as being uh, the people of God? And to drive home the importance of what it means to be God's people, I've actually pulled a text from another part of the Bible uh, outside of Matthew for our first truth this morning. And I'm going to put it on a slide here, First Peter Chapter 2, verse 9. You can mark it in your Bible there as well. But look at, look at verse number 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises 
of him who hath called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. So the first thing we see this morning from this text, and we're going to connect it here to Matthew here this morning, is that God's people, the people of God, we are to be a peculiar people. We are to be a peculiar people. So to be clear, this is, again, not a message from 1 Peter chapter 2. But the primary reason I have chosen this text, this passage here in Peter, as an introduction to our message or our passage of this morning, our sermon this morning, is to really focus on a couple of things, on that word peculiar and the last half of that verse, which says that we've been called out of darkness into his marvelous, into his marvelous light. So the remainder of this sermon is going to be in the book of Matthew. And more importantly, it's going to be from the words of Christ there in Matthew 21. But there are two and four the people of God. They are two and four the people of God. His peculiar people, which begs the question this morning, right, right here in the beginning, are you peculiar? Are you peculiar? Now, I'm not asking if you're strange or weird. Some of us are certainly more, more peculiar than others. You've all met my wife, I guess. <laughs> Don't tell her I said She already knows. I got her approval. But anyway, but the question is, are you peculiar to God? And the word peculiar can indeed be defined as odd or strange or weird. It has that definition. But it can also be defined as that which characterizes something or someone. Like, uh, for example, there is a smell that is peculiar to new cars. Some of us haven't smelled that in a long time, but there is a new car smell that's peculiar to new cars. And in this case, Peter is saying that there is a people that are peculiar to God. In other words, they belong to him. They have been redeemed. They have been purchased. They are His people. So again, this morning, our question is, are you peculiar to God? Do you belong to Him? Are you born again? Do you know for sure that if the Lord would come back today, you would go with Him because He would recognize you as one of His? Or or is there some doubt there? Is there some question? Do you belong to Him? Are you a born-again believer? Have you, by God's grace, through your faith, accepted Jesus Christ as your Redeemer. I haven't quoted Romans 10, 9 in a while, but it says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Simple, straightforward, you do this, you're saved based upon the authority and the power of the Word of God. Please, do not leave here today, and more importantly, don't leave this life without Jesus Christ. Because you have indeed been called, as 1 Peter 2.9 talks about, you have been called out of darkness into His marvelous light, but you have to answer that call. You have to answer that call. In fact, you have to call upon Him to receive that. Right after Romans 10.9, that speaks again about believing that Jesus is risen from the dead. The Bible says in two verses later, three verses later, in verse 13 rather, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I love the simplicity of the gospel. I'm thankful that it's not confusing at all to be saved. One God, one Savior, one redemption, one cross. All we have to do is go one one way to God. Not thousands of ways, one way to salvation through Jesus Christ. So again, are you peculiar to God? If so, this morning, if you are a child of God this morning, and I trust that most of us are, God, through the person of Jesus Christ, has some words for us here in Matthew 21, uh, beginning there again in verse uh, 12. Look at those two verses again, verse 12 and 13. Jesus went into the temple. 
He cast all of them out that sold and bought in the temple. He overthrew some tables. Now, these are not them fold-up plastic tables we have. These are, these are real, real wooden tables. He overthrew those tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said, It is written, My house. You can see maybe the anger in his face. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. You know, as we approach this text, as a peculiar people, as God's people, much like the Jews here, there should be some things that God's people should never do. Right? There, there are some things that should never be peculiar to the people of God as demonstrated by what's going on in this temple here. Not him throwing over the tables, but the reason he threw those tables over. They were doing something that was not, that should not characterize God's people. Jesus, however, uh, through his actions, through his words and his actions, teaches us in these verses and that we are not only to be his people, the peculiar people belonging to him, but I want to use this word here, um, that we are to be a prudent people. That we are to be a prudent people. Now that word prudent is interesting. I was looking for, admittedly, a P word, because I like to have it alliterated, you know. But I was looking for a word that defines what this, what this means and what's capturing the people here. Now prudent means to be wise and well-informed. I mean, who, who wants to... Who wants that boss that's always wise and well informed? We all want to work for that man. We all want to be around those people that are prudent, that are wise and well informed. Prudent means that we should approach things with care and caution, especially the things of God, which was not what was going on here in the temple. They did not approach the temple with prudence. They were they were having a heyday in there, making money and doves and and who else? What else was going on in there? Now, we have no doubt read this passage before, uh, the, the passage where Jesus cleanses the temple. And when compared to the Gospel of John, we learn that Jesus actually cleansed the temple twice. Uh, the two events uh, seem to create some unofficial bookends to the beginning and ending of his earthly ministry, one right after his baptism and one right after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday. And from his words and actions, again, we learn a handful of truths or shall I say a handful of attributes that should characterize the people of God. And we're going to spend the bulk of our time here this morning under what it means to be a prudent people of God. And the rest of this passage we will visit next week. But number one, we see here this morning that we are to have the right priorities. We are to have the right priorities. The people who put this thing together in the temple with the money changers and the doves and those tables, all that they did not have the right priorities. By our Savior's words, the people of God in this passage turned the house of God into a den of thieves. Simply put, they cheapened God's designated place of worship. They cheapened it. Instead of using the temple for its righteous purchase, even if this is only the Gentile court, it still lessened the prestige of the temple. They didn't have the right priorities. And even if this was the Gentile court, which really seems likely, God had designated it, by, again, by his own words, as a place of prayer for all people, for all people, which is significant in and of itself. You know, recording this same incident, Jesus said in Mark chapter 11, verse 16, My house shall be called of all nations a house of prayer. My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. You know, speaking of those other nations in the book of Isaiah, 
chapter 56, verse 7, the Bible says this. God says this. Even them, speaking of those other nations, even them will I bring to my holy mountain. He's speaking of Gentiles, by the way. Speaking of the outcasts of Israel. Even them will I bring to my holy mountain. And I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. And while, of course, we are on this side of the cross with the veil of the Holy of Holies done away with, and so that we can have bold access to God through Jesus Christ, according to Hebrews 4.16, we are still to have the right priorities before God. I mean, think about what our temple today represents, or that temple today, I mean, the Holy of Holies. God visited that place in the Holy of Holies. God is in us today as our temple. We are to set apart this temple. We are to set apart, set apart our bodies and our lives unto God. As Romans 12 speaks about, we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And at a minimum from this passage, our temple should be a place of prayer. We are not to cheapen our purpose of existence by wasting away our lives on things that have zero impact for eternity. Now, I'm not saying that there is no room for relaxation or recreation. We need to come apart sometimes or we'll fall apart. But never forget that Ephesians 2.10 says that we are His workmanship. We are here to work. We're not been saved to go sit on some couch and just watch TV until we fall asleep, wake up with a headache. But we are created in his workmanship. Created, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in that. Many Christians today, I was one of them, I'm saved, praise God, I'm going to heaven, and I do nothing about it here in this life. Let us never lose sight of God's priorities. And thinking along the lines of God's priorities, Jesus here, as to be expected, really gives us a perfect example in keeping those priorities. Notice that immediately after he taught about priorities through his actions by cleansing that temple, I mean, you can almost see this is not, as he turned this is not what my temple is for. Get these birds out of here. Get these chairs out of here. Get all this stuff out of here. This is not what's going on here. So immediately after that, notice verse 14, and that the people were attracted to his holiness. I think this is unique and easy to miss. Verse 14 says, The blind and the lame came to him. Look at that next phrase there, in the temple. And this is the same day. This is right after he does this, and he healed them. Now, for the record, God is always holy. But I think we see a pattern here that can be applied to us. And that pattern is that having our right priorities with God prepare us to serve God. Having the right priorities with God prepare us to serve God. When we are cleansed, God is able to use us. When we are cleansed, God is able to use us. God does not want filthy tools. He wants clean tools. He doesn't want his people having dabbling in all kinds of sin. He wants them to be a pure people. And the more we are cleansed, the more we are ready to serve him. So part of being a prudent people is that we are to be a people who are ready to serve, ready to serve. Notice I did not say that we are to be a serving people. That's a given. We already know that. We are All Christians are to be servants. But I'm talking about being ready to be served, to be ready to be a servant. God's people are to be ready to serve. And I believe this goes right back to the cleansing there in, in the temple. You know, think about that temple there. 
Uh, Terry and I talked about this before. It's often said that that Shekinah glory that was in the Holy of Holies had long been gone before Jesus got there. They had long, Jesus, the, the presence of God had long left the Holy of Holies there. Um, he wasn't there anymore before, again, Jesus came in the flesh. And one of the, the primary reasons, if not the reason, for this was that the people of God were not serving God anymore. Nor were they ready to serve God anymore. Their, uh, their holiness, very clearly seen in the words of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests uh, chief priest throughout the Gospels, their holiness was skin deep. Look at me on the outside, because that's all that matters, because what's on the inside is rotten. What did Jesus call them? Whited sepulchers, you know, all polished on the outside, but completely rotten on the inside. I had a, um, um, a house there in, in, in Tennessee, and I had those, not those big pillars, <laughs> some of those houses like that in there, but I had these little wooden ones from Home Depot, you know, up there, going across the front of them. And as we were selling the house, um, or when we bought the house, and I ended up replacing it many times, when we bought the house, one of those posts were, had some rot at the bottom, but you couldn't see it because it was covered with paint and everything. But you can do this to the post. I mean, not at first, but I was, and then it just, I said, oh, wow, well, let's leave that there and let me go to the store and get that. But you can polish it all you want. It's still rotten on the inside. Jesus even called, it, uh, called them whited sepulchers. In other words, they were like tombstones. Those pretty tombstones. I mean, Germany has some nice tombstones. You walk in there and you see these grand um, cemeteries. But what's under the cemetery? Dead man's bones. And that's what Jesus taught. He called the Pharisees that. You look all pretty on the outside, but you are completely dead on the inside. Their holiness was only skin deep, and wickedness was rampant among the people of God. Their cheapening of the temple here by turning it into a flea market of sorts with currency conversion sharks there who charge ridiculous rates. I mean, what's going on here is the the Jewish temple would only receive um, Jewish coins, and people, the Jews, would come all over the town to to pay that uh, the homage there, but the Jew would only receive that. So they would have a conversion table out there, the money changers, and they would convert that foreign currency into temple currency, and the rates would be ridiculous because they knew that the honest Jew had to do that. And then they sold all the things that they had to sacrifice out there, the lambs, the, the goats, and whatever, you know, whatever they're doing. That. And they sold them at enormous rates for those people that were coming to there. And that was take those deals were taking place in the temple. And Jesus like, I don't think so. These things need to go out of here. And their actions there were really only a small picture of their wrong priorities. That was just a They had wrong priorities everywhere. Again, their holiness was only skin deep. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 4, God called his own people a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors, and that they have forsaken the Lord. You see, they replaced serving God with serving self, disqualifying themselves really from serving God. And oh, how we could get there so easily. But I want to point out, like Solomon wrote in the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 15, he wrote that the little foxes, it's the little foxes that spoil the vine. You're probably thinking, what, what in the world does Solomon talk about here? In other words, Israel didn't wake up one morning, and you and I don't wake up one morning surprised at how far we have fallen from where we used to be in our walk with God. No, oftentimes sin takes a hold of our lives just a little bit at a time. Watch this, read this, do this, say this, just a little bit at a time, on and on and on. But we're not to, we're supposed to hold back those things. Speaking of cleansing, 2 Timothy 2.21 states that if a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified 
and meet for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. The, the connection there, the, um, the, the connection there is, 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 is difficult to miss how we can be a vessel of honor if we purge things from our lives, much like the temple can be a vessel for God if it's purged from those things it shouldn't be doing. And do we not want to be meat for the master's use, prepared unto every good work? And so we are not to allow sin, even those little sins, to take a foothold in our lives. Staying ready to serve God therefore requires that cleansing and it requires vigilance to keep those little sins or those little foxes, as Solomon called them, away from us. Keep them away. It's the little sins that spoil the vine. Furthermore, it's, it's noteworthy that Matthew here records the blind and the lame, again, coming to Jesus right after he threw those tables over. I mean, he, he made sure that the temple, pointing out that the temple had a more holy purpose. But imagine that for a moment. Imagine maybe you're the lame guy, or maybe, maybe you're, you're the blind man, or whatever it is, and you're there in the temple. I mean, it's, they're, on, they're on the courts, of course. They couldn't go inside the, the temple proper there, but the, the lame man is there, the, the, uh, the blind man. But imagine hearing the chaos of all those tables. I mean, if I were to go through here and just start flipping, <laughs> it would be quite, quite noisy. I mean, and these are just flimsy old chairs, not first century wooden um, tables here, but Jesus and they're flipping these tables over. Imagine the coins just scattered across the temple floor, maybe some metal hitting the floor and people, I mean it was a ruckus. But after all of that, the blind and the lame still come to him. They were not fearful to approach our Savior, which I think strongly indicates that there was no loss of composure by our Savior. He didn't lose his composure. And by the way, losing your composure is not manly. It's actually immature. Be in charge of you and then surrender that to God and nothing else. Jesus did not lose his composure, which again should not be surprising to us because he's God in the flesh. My point here is that if part of staying ready to serve a holy God is to be holy ourselves because he is holy, we must do it in a way that encourages the blind and the lame to approach us. Right? You get that? We are to be humble in our holiness. We don't walk around like, I'm, I'm better than that person. I go to church twice a week. You know, I read my Bible every day. That's not the kind of holiness. That's not even holiness anyway. That's pharisaical. We are to be humble in our holiness. Because if we are not, get this now, we will not have anybody to serve. We cannot fulfill our purpose for God without serving others here on this earth. I'm going to say that again. We must be humble in our holiness because if we are not there will be no one to serve, and we cannot fulfill our purpose for God without serving others on this earth. It's impossible. So make it a point. I've been convicted with this passage to make it a point to keep my priorities in line with God's priorities. Make it a point to keep ourselves ready to serve, which includes serving others. And then as we go through the text here, notice a couple phrases from verses 13 and 16. Verse 13 Jesus said unto them, it is written. And then in verse 16, the chief priest scribes said unto him, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus again responds to them, Yea, have ye never read? I, I, I like this point here. You know, it's no surprise, but, but twice in five verses here, the first words out of Jesus' mouth on both occasions was a reference to the word of God. Both times. Therefore, the next attribute, I believe very strongly in this one, that the, the people of God are to be rooted in the Scriptures. Now, we, 
I don't think we'll stay here too long (laughs) because this truth is visited often from this pulpit, but this is a foundational characteristic of God's people to be rooted in Scripture. I believe that the Scriptures are so fundamental to God's people in their everyday life that if the Bible does not have a respectable influence in your life, one can rightfully question your Christianity. The importance of God's Word in every aspect of your life really cannot be overemphasized. You know, that phrase, it is written, is used 30 times just in the Gospels, and about 70 in the New Testament. There are, of course, many other passages throughout both the Old and New Testaments highlighting the importance of God's Word. From the phrase, and God said there in Genesis 1, to the warnings there at the end of Revelation against tampering with Scripture, the Bible is at the core of every true doctrine from God. And just like we cannot fulfill our purpose for God without serving others here on earth, we cannot recognize our purpose for God without being rooted in God's Word. I mean, think about this. No wonder the Jews failed to recognize Jesus. They won't read in his book. Oh, they were reading it, but not allowing the Holy Spirit to lead them in the way that he wanted to, he wanted them to see their blessed Savior. Again, it's no surprise that the Jews failed to recognize their blessed Savior. I mean, look what Jesus asked them in verse 16. Have you never read? That's not the only time he asked that, by the way. He asked that a couple other times on different subjects. I mean, think about that for a moment, the, the magnitude of that. God personally wrote to his own people, and then he had to come. Did you read what I wrote? Did you read what I wrote? You know, I've been on a handful of real-world military operations in my life, and when the actions of another soldier (laughs) cause you to question whether or not they read the op order, it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. I mean, the Christian life really isn't much different than this. I can look back in my own life and remember the wrong decisions that I made that I would not have made if I knew what I knew now from the Bible. Now, I'm not talking about deep theological truths that come with maturing and stuff like that. No, I'm talking about simple mistakes that could have been avoided if I was rooted in the Scriptures. Read this book. Now, I don't know about you. I don't want to hear those words when I get to heaven. Have you never read? You know, imagine that. You're standing before God, and it's something that you should have known, and you're like giving an excuse, and Jesus would be like, didn't you read this part? Didn't you read this part? Have you, have you never read? I don't want to hear that. How sad is it to not read the letter from a God who redeemed us and has all the answers that we need for this life? All the answers that we need for this life. Be rooted in Scripture. Be rooted in Scripture. It's a fundamental must for the people of God, which really naturally leads to what Jesus specifically addressed his question here. Notice again verse 15 and 16. And when the chief priest and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased, and said unto him, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus said unto them, Yea, have ye never read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise? And from this verse we learn, I believe, that the people of God are to have real worship in their hearts, real heart for worship. You know, there is just something about the worship that comes from a child. It's just something pure It's more innocent, it's clean, it's clear, it seems so simple. I mean, look here, notice the contrast in the text here. The chief priest and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and they were sore displeased. They saw the wonderful things that Jesus did, 
and they got angry. The children saw the same wonderful things that Jesus did, and they said, Hosanna, the son of David. What a contrast. The children did not look for ulterior motives. They were not concerned about the overthrown tables. They were not concerned about the money being thrown everywhere. They just saw the lame walk and the blind see, and they praised God for it. How often do we miss the great graces and the great gifts from God in this life because we're distracted by all the other things in this life? Praise God for the goodness that he's given us. God, is, God here called their praise perfect. Perfect praise. I realize that for adults, it's very hard for us not to be overly concerned with the things of life. And truthfully, there are things that we should be concerned about. But perfect praise and pure worship comes from a heart that can let those things be, puts them in the right place and the right priority, and pure praise comes from a heart that trusts God for the extra grace needed for the moment that you're in. Extra grace. I had a chaplain one time. He's long with the Lord right now. But he say EGR. He just said it all the time. When you're in a moment that's really just stress, he's like extra grace required have you asked for it yet and we need that from time to time and we we, and it's it's there it's inexhaustible the grace of god and sometimes we need a lot for it and a pure heart uh, our perfect praise from a pure and pure worship comes from a heart that realizes that god's got it all taken care of i just need to praise god you know we don't have to look very hard to find something good from god in our lives i mean even if it's only a, a personal salvation that we have And every so often, with the simplicity of a child, I would say at least weekly, with the simplicity of a child, we need to forget about those trials, forget about the world, forget about the locusts, forget about um, all the things that, 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 that bother us throughout the week and throughout the day, and focus on the goodness of God and praise His holy name. That's perfect praise and a mark of God's people. Certainly, each one of us, have a desire to give God perfect praise. That word perfect means complete. Jesus said in John 4.23 that true worshipers worship the Father and spirit and in truth. And I love this next phrase, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. He looks for it. God very much desires your true praise and your true worship. And just like childlike faith brings us into the family of God, Childlike praise and worship brings us into the presence of God. Out of the mouth of babes, he says, thou hast uh, perfected praise. The book of Psalms, as, as we talked about earlier, is 150 chapters. It begins with, blessed is a man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, and ends with, let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. You know, one of the greatest things we can do with the life that was breathed into us to make us a living soul is to praise God with that same living breath. It's the mark of a man who knows God personally. Do you know him personally? Do you belong to Jesus Christ? Do these characteristics here, having the right priorities, ready to serve, rooted in Scripture, having a real heart for praise and worship, do these characteristics describe your life Or is it time for God to turn over some tables in your life to get us cleansed and get us back on the right track? Are you ready to serve him? Or are the little foxes holding you back? Are you rooted in the scriptures? And do you have a real heart of worship? You know, wherever you are in your walk, wherever I am in my walk, 
if you have ne- or if you've never walked with God, letting Jesus have his perfect way, all that you are is always of the next step, and he can do greater things than you can possibly imagine. Praise God for his amazing grace. And it's good to know that we are the people of God if, we, if in fact, you've trusted Christ as your Savior. And let's go to our, our Savior in prayer this morning.